I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is in the Old Testament, just in case you were wondering. Deuteronomy chapter 34, 32, excuse me, will be where we start today. And as you're turning there, we are wrapping up our summer series of Church in the Wild. This has been uh, an opportunity for us to explore uh, the analogy of the wilderness in Scripture. The two primary places in Scripture we see the analogy, or excuse me, the wilderness uh, as very pertinent moments for God's people. Number one is uh, in Exodus where uh, Israel is is redeemed out of Egypt, sent into the wilderness, but also with our Lord as well. And, and one of the themes that we've mentioned or certainly reiterated is that God uses the wilderness experience for his people as a means of serious testing in order for significant blessing. Specifically that God has a plan for preparation and he uses the wilderness to do that. What the, 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 the circumstances, the trials, the tensions of the wilderness prepares God's people to, to bless, to minister, to serve others. And so we started this series by looking into this moment where Moses calls the people of Israel into uh, this covenant faithfulness with, with, with their God. And he's looking to, uh, you know, inspire, encourage in them a deeper devotion and appreciation for all that God has done at the cusp of entering this journey. Now here at the end of Deuteronomy, we are looking uh, at the conclusion of a 40-year journey. Isn't that crazy? Like, I don't know about you, it, it has felt like the, the experience since March has felt like 40 years here with the COVID-19 pandemic. But it's only been about five months that we've had this, these odd circumstances. Can you imagine 40 years of wandering in the wilderness? And... At the beginning of Deuteronomy, God instructs Moses, he says, Enter and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to give your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their future descendants. So to prepare this people for this monumental experience, Moses shares God's word and calls Israel to renew their covenantal commitments. Matter of fact, kind of the, the whole message of Deuteronomy for this moment in time, I believe, can be summed up in Deuteronomy chapter 5. So I want you to listen to these verses where Moses says, he says, You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. So it's really Deuteronomy is serving as this preparatory piece for, the, for the, the, the people of Israel to take possession of the land that God has called them to, but also to recognize that God has a certain expectation for this people. And as we have made this uh, analogy throughout the course of this sermon series, we're looking at how God is using this wilderness experience for us as a means of serious testing and preparation for a significant blessing. So what I want to do here today is just to simply walk through the circumstances that Israel faces in order to fulfill God's call and command upon them, and then draw some lines to how it certainly may apply to our actions, our steps here today. And simply speaking, today we're going to look at the challenges, 
the covenantal promises and the odd circumstances to enter the promised land. And here in Deuteronomy chapter 32, we begin by seeing the challenges to enter the promised land. And the first challenge that Israel faces, and it's a doozy, is leadership transition. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, starting in verse 40, 48, Moses learns of devastating news from the Lord that creates this first challenge. Let's begin reading in verse 48. It says, that very day the Lord spoke to Moses. He said, go up this mountain of the Abraham, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, and view the land of Canaan which I am giving to the people of Israel for possession. Can you imagine how exciting that must have been for like just the moment there? You've been in the wilderness for 40 years, and all of a sudden, like there it is. Like you're seeing, like we talk about, you know, the promised land as like metaphorically speaking. He's literally seeing the promised land. And this is what it says. He says, sorry, there we go. And uh, he says in verse 50, and die on the mountain which you go up and be gathered to your people as Aaron your brother died in the Mount Hor which was and was gathered to his people so all of a sudden there's this huge pendulum swing of I'm sure like the excitement of hearing we finally get to see it and all of a sudden the devastating news that he is going to not be able himself to experience entering that land I talk about unfulfilled like the feeling of we've made it, but now I can't go in. And this is why he says, the Lord tells Moses, because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people at the waters of Meribah, Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. For you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there to the land that I am giving to the people of Israel. Now, we can all imagine like the devastation that Moses must feel internally. Like we can all be very sympathetic with this. But I think what we have to understand as well, not just the emotional state of Moses, but the state of Israel as a people. L listen to this description of Moses from Deuteronomy 34. It says in verse 10, and there has not arisen a prophet since, uh, since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Listen to verse 11, it says, None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. So here you have this man who was, humanly speaking, the savior, the deliverer of Israel. God used Moses to bring in his judgment into Israel. He used Moses to lead Israel out from bondage. And now, even despite 40 years of wandering, they have looked to this man to see what the Lord wants from him. And now here, in a moment, Moses learns, and subsequently Israel as well, that that leader, his time is done. Have you ever experienced... Uh, maybe someone that you love, a leader in your life, transitioning out of it. Have you ever had that happen? Um, as, as a young, as an adolescent, uh, have, and I've shared this with you, as my dad passed when I was 13, um, I found myself very, like, fond of coaches, 
Uh, we had my parents just become Christians, so even like youth pastors as well. And there's one particular youth pastor um, that was like my hero. Uh, I was 15, 16, and his name was Alan Benson. Uh, Alan Benson was uh, was my guy. He was he was this uh, this man that God brought into my life that modeled so many things that were. Uh, impactful and and just showed me what what it looked like to pastor to, to love his wife to be a great dad and I just found myself just not getting couldn't, I couldn't get enough of Pastor Allen in my life I would meet with him weekly I would want to you know hang out with just, I, I just love this guy and I remember we're on a mission trip in Mexico and he pulled me aside and he's like hey man I gotta tell you some news and I was like yeah I was thinking it was trip related he said just so you know when we go back my time at our church is, is winding down and, and I understood it, I respected it, but I was, I was broken. I, I remember when he told all of us as a youth group, as you can imagine with teenagers, we were all just, you know, crying, and, oh, Pastor Allen. And it was, and, and looking back now, it, it, you know, it's circumstantial and, and we, we all were fine, but it, that leadership transition is not easy. And I, I love Pastor Allen, I never lived with the guy. <laughs> I, I knew him for just a couple years as my youth pastor. Here we're talking about a man who delivered millions of people out of bondage, brought them into the wilderness, and has led them day in and day out. And now when they're getting ready for their climactic moment, he's out. So you can imagine, we can, we can sympathize for a moment with what this might look like in the, the, life, of, the life of Moses, but certainly the people of Israel. And it's not just a leadership transition that they're facing. They're also facing, as a second challenge, legitimate, real opposition. Now, the reason I qualify it as real opposition, because I think if we're not careful, sometimes we might like qualify uh, like this normal tensions in our life as like you know, an opposition from enemy or an enemy. Like, I, like for instance. I think, about, I think about this in a very real way in the struggle of parenting. Um, I think especially of moms. You know, here, moms uh, have every good intention to provide the best life possible for their kids. Uh, you know, from anywhere from what, you know, the, the, the treats they pack in their lunch, the, the experience they provide, you know, after school to fun, you know, day trips on the weekend. Like, literally, and the moms I know in this church are amazing. There's all of their... All of their intention is to provide for their kids a life where, you know, they feel love and they experience goodness and they have this, this amazing desire to provide that. But we all have seen or experienced the tension when kids don't want none of that. You know what I'm saying? Like we've seen it. We've felt it. Literally, we have felt our kids opposing that. Now, if we're not careful, we might look at our kids as the enemy. If you ever go to Disney World, um, like this time of year, you hear you got these parents who have, you know, gone out of their way to bring their kids to Disney World, and you see, like, the face-off, you know what I'm saying? Like, where the kid is, like, ah, you know, losing their mind, and parents are like, you're going to have a good time. And there's that, like, there's that tension of, of parents wanting to provide their kids a sweet life and kids feeling like, you know, they want to do their own thing, and there's that opposition. But let's be honest, our kids aren't the enemy. Israel here has a literal enemy that they are facing, that is opposing them doing what God has called them to do. 
And they don't just have an enemy, they have actually an obstacle as well. I want to bring you to Joshua. Just turn over a few pages in, from Deuteronomy to Joshua. We're actually just going to touch here and come back later. But here we learn two real oppositions to the children of Israel entering and taking possession of the land that God has promised them. In Joshua chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, Joshua commands the officers of the people to pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan. Without trying to sound like you know demeaning, but y'all know what Jordan is referring to, right? A river, an uncrossable river. And it's not just like the Swiss family Robinson getting together their boat and crossing the river here. We're talking about a nation of people, young and old, having to move across a literal river that otherwise would prevent them from going into the, the land God has promised them. And it's not just they're crossing the river. We quickly also learn in verse 11 that there's another obstacle, another opposition, and that is conquering the city of Jericho. It says in, in, uh, in Joshua chapter 1, verse 11, it says to go in to this land, take possession that the Lord has given you to possess. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies going, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. We learn in chapter 2, verse 1, that their whole, the, 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 the pathway to being in this place has a fortified city. So I want to just pause here for a minute and just for us to consider the challenges that Israel is facing. They've wandered for 40 years. They've come to the promised land. And now in a moment, they learn their leader is gone. As they step into following what God has called them to do, now all of a sudden they see there are, there's legitimate real opposition. A river they can't cross on their own and a fortified enemy waiting to stop them from pursuing what God has called them to. Now I'm going to save the application for towards the end, but we can, in a, in a, in a, in a way that's analogous to this, understand that we, like Israel, can often face tensions, obstacles, and really opposition to doing what God has called us to do. And one of the reasons I believe that it would be so important for us to look into this, um, into this text, but this study this, this summer, is for us to see the faithfulness of God despite a displaced people. And I don't know about you, but I have felt the weight of the displacement of, of the separation, of just wondering what God is doing. And you can only imagine what Israel is feeling here after there's, they're knowing their journey is over, they're seeing the promised land, and it's like, wait, Lord, wait, there's a river we can't cross on our own and a, and a city we can't overcome? We can be sympathetic to that moment in the life of Israel. But thankfully, what we see here is that despite the challenges Israel is facing to enter in the promised land, we see that Israel is equipped, empowered with covenantal promises from God to them that we see in Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. As we look into these nine verses of Joshua to uncover these covenantal promises, this, I believe, is really the fuel, not just for Joshua, but for the whole nation of Israel to take part to go forward, to move in the direction that God is calling them. And 
I think if we're being honest, they would have to have such near and dear promises like these to take part in the journey they're on. I mean, when, when, when we face our own trials and tensions, they probably never look like doing the impossible. They may have felt like the impossible at times, but we've never had to cross a river that, we, that is not humanly possible for us to do. We've never had to defeat a literal fortified enemy. However, and beautifully, God still loves us and provides for us in the same way he provided for his people. And we find God fulfilling covenantal promises to his people, and we see three of them. First of all, the first promise we encounter here is a promise of a place. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 1, it says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Look at verse 3 here. Look at, look at the authority that God gives Joshua. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you. But notice what he says to accompany that promise. Just as I what? They promised to Moses from the, wilder, from, this, from the wilderness and this Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. You can only imagine the, 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 the comfort and joy that Joshua is feeling, not only that he has the promise of God, you know, backing him, but the thought of, you know, what home has Joshua ever had? What place could Joshua look to and say, that this is, this is mine and my family? He's wandered for 40 years. He's been in slavery prior to that. And now God says, I've given you a place. There's comfort in that, isn't there? Why do you think Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going, and I wouldn't tell you I'm going if it wasn't for the fact that I'm preparing what for you? A place. John 14. So this promise, this covenantal promise that God makes here is in a similar fashion the same thing that God makes to us. He has promised for us a place. He himself is preparing the way for us to that place. But it's not just a promise of place that encourages Joshua. As we look into verse 5, it's the promise of God's presence. He says, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses. What does he tell Joshua? So I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And based on that, what does he tell Joshua? He says, be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according all, all to the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. If you've ever uh, been into like a, maybe like a community pool or a hotel pool that has a slide, you've probably either firsthand experienced or witnessed the, the tension that comes when a parent is trying to get their young kid to go down that water slide for the first time. You know what I'm talking about? There's a little bit of a dance that takes place there where the kid sees the slide 
and he's like, ooh, that looks fun. And mom or dad is trying to get the kid down the slide. If you've ever been in line for that experience, while there's a kid up top who's afraid, it can be a little bit annoying, a little bit frustrating, but you feel bad for the kid because he's legitimately afraid. And it's not just that he's like, he may know how to swim fine and he may think it looks cool, but the fact that he has to go down that slide by himself all but wrecks that kid, doesn't it? Um, in some cases, uh, when it's sometimes just supposed to be the, the, the one person at a time, that kid is so fearful. What does a mom or dad sometimes do despite breaking the rules? Snatches the kid up <laughs> and just goes down the slide, sometimes kicking and screaming. And the kid gets in the water and is like, that was fun, let's do it again. So we've all seen that, maybe experienced that. And I think about what's happening here. Joshua has been given a call to go into an enemy territory to be a part of the miraculous work of God. He doesn't have Moses with him. He's leading the charge. And he probably feels anywhere from the weight of that responsibility to just the simple anxiety and fear of the unknown, of the enemy opposition. And what does God do to prepare Joshua for this moment? He says, I will be with you. Matter of fact, I'm not going to leave you or, for, or forsake you. I will be loyal and faithful to you. And I find it yet again interesting. Those are, this is the very word that Jesus gives his own followers before he ascends in heaven. He says, I will be with you. The very presence of God gives his people exactly what they need to take that next step of obedience. We see one more promise, this covenantal promise that Joshua receives from the Lord, starting in verse 8. It's a promise, ultimately, of prosperity. Joshua learns from the Lord. He says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have not I commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. We find in the story of Israel that God makes so clear to them, if you obey, you will receive this conditioned blessing. He, he, he's faithful to it. He manifests it frequently, uh, deeply. And the story of Israel is one of their obedience is this gateway into this incredible blessing of God. We're going to see how that takes place in just a moment, but my guess is that you're not unfamiliar with this story, so you know what's coming. But I want to just pause here for a moment and to encourage you, because I think it's easy for us today to think of the blessing of God in our lives underneath the same circumstances like Joshua, meaning we have to do A in order for God to do B. Our obedience is what conditions or earns or merits God's blessing. What's fascinating is that that statement is true, that blessing equals obedience. Excuse me, obedience equals blessing. Or blessing, excuse me, obedience produces blessing. But what's so amazing for us is that our blessing the blessing that we have and that we will enjoy forever is not merited or earned by our works. 
We have the true Israel, Jesus Christ, who has faithfully obeyed his father in all respects to the law, took upon our debts, our sins of the cross, and do you know what we can enjoy today? The blessing of God. We don't have to have a good day to earn the blessing of God. We are living inside of the blessing of Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that our, our obedience should be marginalized, but if we're thinking that we are uh, going to receive the blessing of God conditioned upon the things that we do, we're setting ourselves up for failure. And matter of fact, we're not believing what truly is the gospel. So the beauty of these covenantal promises that obedience is what produces blessing is, yes, that's true, but it's not our obedience. It's the obedience of Jesus Christ. So what we're going to find out as, as Joshua leans into the promises of God and experiences his blessing is that as we draw these lines to today that the life God has called us to, the journey God has placed us on is not one that we have to go in alone or without his presence or certainly without his promises. Matter of fact, it's just the opposite. God has given us everything we need, 1 Peter 1, for life and godliness. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. We can take every step forward into obedience, not because of our sheer will, but because of the will of Jesus Christ who looked in the face of our sin, in the face of darkness, and prevailed and conquered. So as we look at the final point here, the odd circumstances to entering the promised land, we see how all of this comes together, and it's certainly sweet despite unique. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 10, it says, And Joshua commanded the officers of the people to pass through the midst of the camp and, and command the people, Prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in and take possession. And we find here this first odd circumstance, and that's in Joshua 3, where they are to cross Jordan. Starting in Joshua 3, verse 1, it says, Joshua rose up early in the morning, and they set out, and they came to Jordan, and he and all the people lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. What does God do? He makes provision for the people of Israel to follow the priest holding up the ark, and they're going to walk literally straight through a river. Listen to what it says here in verse 5, and I, and I love this verse. I'm going to come back to it later. Joshua says to the people, Consecrate yourselves. Get right with the Lord. For what? Tomorrow the Lord will do what? Can you imagine how awesome, I mean, can you imagine how, I, maybe I sound childish here, but how cool would that have been to know that God is going to show up and do something incredible, right? I mean, they're fixing for something awesome to happen. And Joshua was saying, y'all better get ready for something cool because the Lord's going to do miracles, wonders among you. Joshua said to the priest, take up the Ark of the Covenant, verse 6, pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark, went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Let's continue reading here. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, 
shall rest in the waters of Jordan. The waters of Jordan shall be cut off from flowing. And the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. It's crazy. I don't get Israel, man. They get a chance to see this twice. Can you imagine to see it once with, in the Red Sea and now to see it here? It's unbelievable what the Lord does. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, what happened? Verse 16, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away. Verse 17, or excuse me, end of verse 16, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And, and listen to this. And all Israel was passing over on what? Wet ground? Damp ground? On what? Dry ground. Come on, man. So all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. That's crazy. Like this is just stuff that I, I love reading. I, I kind of want I wish I could experience it myself. I, wouldn't that be cool? I mean, just... If I'm being honest, like, to see God do something so unique like that. And the story wasn't over. That was just the first odd circumstance. The priests go in, hold up the ark, the river stops, everyone passes through, the river comes back together, but there's one more. In the conquered Jericho, just for sake of time, and you all know the story, they look out, they see this huge fortified city, and what does God tell them to do? To build a cannon? To build a Trojan horse to go in? No, what does he tell them to do? To walk around it tells them to walk around it in verse 5 of Joshua 6 and when they and when they go around this it says on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times and the priest shall blow the trumpets uh, and it says in verse 5 when they make a long blast with the ram's horn when you hear the sound of the trumpet then all the people shall shout with a great shout and what's going to happen and the wall of the city will fall down flat so the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout. And what happened to the wall? It fell down flat. People go in, capture the city. So even though this is a very familiar, two familiar stories, like just, just process this, this experience here. Forty years they wandered in the wilderness. They come to this promised land, and to get into it, to take possession of it, they have to cross through an impenetrable river, and defeat an impenetrable city. Like, only God could do this in the lives of these people. And when we consider the work of the Lord in the lives of our brothers and sisters here, way back in the Old Testament, it inspires in us a faith. But let's be honest, because this isn't our experience, what do we make of all this? Like how do, we, how do we bring this down to a point of application for today? The story is not certainly ours, but one we can, we can learn from. I want to explain what I mean by this, just by, by two thoughts here. Number one, when we look at this story, we have to see it as analogous but not literal, meaning we're not Israel. We don't have physical enemies like Jericho that needs conquering. However, because this is analogous to our journey of faith, we certainly face challenges and opposition that threaten our faith. Some of these are internal, while many are external as well. 
Regardless of the source of struggle or opposition, this story of the wilderness and the promised land, I believe, reminds us of how desperately we all need God. Easy answer. Could Israel have gone into the promised land without God, yes or no? No. So why do we think, and again, this may sound a little bit pretentious, but, or, you know, I don't want to be like scolding you, but why do we think that we can walk by faith, like, like live out the life that God has called us to without desperately searching and seeking after God? Like, I think sometimes we just rely on our own strength or our own intellect or our own abilities or our own resources. Like when we look at the story of Israel, we think y'all are dumb for not relying on God. Like, why would you do that? Like, didn't you see what God did? Didn't you know how good he is or how faithful he is? But think about us. How quickly do we forget the love and faithfulness of God? Or how quickly do we forget our own, like, insufficiencies to do just sometimes daily tasks? I talked about the struggle of parenting kids. You ever received or been impatient from a, you know, as a parent, you ever been impatient with a kid? You ever scolded them, you know, too angrily? You ever been frustrated with a spouse? Like, just the simple task of life we so desperately need God for. A second point of application is that this, the promises of God, the, the victory we long for is ours already, but it's yet, yet not complete. Let me explain. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 1 that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. See, Jesus has fulfilled all the plans necessary for our redemption, but yet we await his return. And it's in that waiting is where we find our struggle, isn't it? Like just simply waiting for this stuff to get over. It's like, man, will this ever end? Waiting for us to be receiving the glory. There is tension and struggle in that. I just want to encourage you that even though you might be looking for God to conquer your enemies or to help you cross your Jordans, I, I want to just pivot here for a moment. And, and wrap up today by saying, instead of looking for God to do miracles, I think we're going to be better served when we realize we're living in the middle of one. You know, Joshua 3.5, I, I promise I'd come back to it. Joshua is telling the people, hey, like, get ready for God's going to do something miraculous. Just consecrate yourselves because God is going to do some wonders among you. I think instead of us living in expectation of what God may do in the future, we as a people will be so much better off if we live out of the reality of what God has already done. Let me, let me express it in these terms. We could say this verse, uh, going back to Joshua 3, since the Lord has done one wonders among us, we should consecrate ourselves. Let me just say how Paul says it in Romans 12. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. What are these mercies of God? Well, it's faithful and loyal love. His death on a cross. His resurrection from the grave. The home he's preparing for us. The defeat of sin and death itself. These things are already true. We're not waiting for God to do these things. And it's out of that joy of knowing what has already been done, we can move forward, can't we? Like, I'm telling you, it has been hard during these past few months, hasn't it? 
And if we're being honest, it has been maybe some of the struggles of our spiritual lives facing the COVID pandemic. When all that we have leaned on for comfort has either been stripped away or we've seen the futility of it. We can only watch so much Netflix. We can only scroll Amazon Prime for so long. But the reality is, our biggest problem in this is that we've been looking for what God will do or may do instead of understanding what he's already done. And if our church is to go forward in any direction, and I, mean, I don't know what that's going to look like. Let's be honest. We don't know. We have ideas. We have plans. But we don't know. Instead of wondering what may happen, can we wake up every day and say, God, I'm going to live out of what you have done. I appeal to you by the mercies of God. He's defeated death. Sin has no power over us. We're not displaced. We have a family. All things in Christ. And when we as a church start living out of that reality, I'm sorry, when we start living out of that reality, life's going to change. We've talked for so much about bringing in the gospel where we live and work and play, and now God has given us an opportunity for many of us. That's just one address. And I would dare say over these past couple months, there's just been a lack of that gospel's presence, like it ought to be, like we need it to be. And can this moment in the life of Israel, but in the life of Bay City's Fellowship, getting ready to celebrate our third birthday, could we not just simply look once again to the mercies of God in Scripture, but in our own lives, and say, God, here I am. Here's all of us all of the time, all to your glory. So whether it's going home today and, and loving that hard-to-deal-with child, getting up tomorrow and knowing you have that frustrating coworker or that new responsibility, whether it's just waking up and saying, God, I need you today. I need to be in your word. I need to talk to you. Whatever opposition or challenge we all are facing, and they're different. They're different based on where we're at in life. What we're, they're, they're all different. But they're real, and they're challenging. And if we can lean in together and stay close together and close to the Lord through a very unique time that's not over, we can move forward, not by merely anticipating what God will do, because he's going to do some cool things. We know that. But by more importantly, believing in what he's already accomplished. That's good news. That's the gospel. That's why Paul says in Romans 1 that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It is for us, from faith, by faith, for faith. As we conclude this morning, I just want to, I'm going to invite our musicians to come up. And I want us as a church just to respond to the work of the Lord, to his word. And this will just be a simple time for us just to conclude this series in prayer. Maybe there's something that you need to bring specifically to the Lord. Maybe something that you need to confess. Maybe there's just, just some intimacy that you need to, to regain. I don't know what it may be, but I, I do know, and I want to encourage you that whatever it may be, use the quietness, the simplicity of this moment to stop and come before the Lord and just say, God, here I am. 
There's all of me. It's all for you. I want to live all for your glory. So whatever circumstance or opposition I might be facing, I want to take the next right step of obedience. So as they begin to play, just here, I invite you just to quietly bow at your seat, talk to the Lord. If you want to pray with someone next to you, feel free to do that. This is just a time that we've set aside to conclude this series, to conclude our Sunday today, saying, God, I need you. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. As we end this series, I pray that we would walk out of this gathering and step into our next step of obedience, loving our spouses, caring for our neighbors, showing patience to our children, praying for a classmate, praying for a student, saying, Lord, where I live, work, and play needs to be blessed by the blessing that you've given me in the gospel of Jesus. I want to live that out each and every day. So Lord, our prayer as a church that, is that we would delight in and display and declare your gospel so that where we live, and work and play would be reached with the good news of Jesus. But Lord, if we're not preaching that gospel to ourselves each and every day, there's no way that we'll delight or display in declaring it. So would we leave this gathering today renewed and transformed to live out your purposes, delighting and displaying and declaring your gospel. As we await your return, Lord, let us live patience and endurance. You've given us all that we need to do so. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray this. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, I would ask that you do stay, but if you do stay and talk, try your best to do it outside. I know it's warm. Uh, if you have children here, make sure you get them right away. It helps us kind of get out of here and get it into the parking lot quickly. Thank you for joining us online as well. We look forward to seeing you all again soon. Love you all. God bless. Have a great Sunday.